0: Welcome to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Culler. Thank you for listening. In the last episode of our series on Queen Christina of Sweden, we watched as the Queen, losing popularity and support and despairing of her position, made the fateful decision to abdicate the throne. Concurrent with this momentous decision was her further decision to convert to Catholicism. No longer welcome in the country of her birth, Christina departed, bound for Rome. She traveled first to Stockholm, then to Hamburg, then to Antwerp, then to Innsbruck, and finally arrived in Rome on December 20th, 1655. There, she was greeted with much pomp and circumstance. The Pope and the clergy seemed overjoyed to have Christina, a former symbol of Protestant power, with them in Rome, living life as a Catholic. However, Christina would soon find that the city of her dreams would fail to live up to her high expectations. She found Roman high society to be stiff and unwelcoming, and she began to grow restless once again. Oddly enough, she began to miss her old power and the exercise of it. She became aware of an opportunity to regain it through her contacts in the Vatican. Early on, Christina fell in with a group of politically influential cardinals known as the Squadron Volante. Among their ranks was one cardinal in particular that Christina took a liking to, one Cardinal Decio Azzolino. Cristina and Azulino very quickly formed a rather close relationship that would last until their deaths, but more on that later. Anyway, through the Squadron Volante, Cristina learned that France was trying to place a client monarch on the throne of the Kingdom of Naples as a part of their ongoing war against Spain. Christina believed that she might be a prime candidate for this position, given her previous experience as the monarch of a nation and her pro-French sensibilities. She began to correspond with the French king's minister of state, Cardinal Mazarin. Mazarin encouraged Christina to travel to France so they could hammer out the details of their plot in person. And so it was that Christina departed Rome, the everlasting city, on July 26, 1656, less than a year after arriving, no less. Upon arriving in France, Christina discovered that Cardinal Mazarin was far more lukewarm about this scheme than he had led on. Just as crafty as his predecessor. Cardinal Richelieu, Mazarin had other plans in the works for undermining the Spanish, and while he never gave his official approval to Christina's scheme, he continually led her to believe that she had his backing. Unbeknownst to Christina, she was just another pawn in the grand diplomatic game Mazarin was playing. Mazarin was anxious to avoid any negotiations with Christina, so he made arrangements to overwhelm her with festivities so as to distract her. Similar to her journey through northern Italy, from the second she landed at Marseille on the 29th of July, Christina was treated to, quote, magnificent entertainments, end quote. Her hosts in each of the towns she passed en route to Paris, quote, never wasted a single minute when they should have been amusing her, end quote. Following a whirlwind tour of the French towns and countryside, Christina arrived in Paris on the 8th of September, there, she received a reception as grand as the one she had received in Rome earlier that year. 22,000 onlookers are said to have turned out to greet her. As the prominent satirist Jean Loret described it, quote, There were 30 or 40 duchesses, all flirty and haughty to much us, Jostling for rank in their skills and laces, smiles affixed to their painted faces, and baronesses, a 120 or so, for we've got plenty of them, you know, and abbots and bishops, a 100 at least, and the scholars and savants were there in droves, preferring the court to their leafy groves, and authors and academic wits, and critics and similar idiots, and linguists and chemists and all their bright sparks, and millions and millions of clerks. End quote. The entourage escorted Christina to the Louvre, where an apartment was provided for her. A quick note, at this point the Louvre was not a museum and was a royal residence. Anyway. Over the next few weeks, Christina would discover that life in Parisian high society suited her much better than it did in Rome. To be sure, her erratic behavior was the cause of a couple minor scandals, the most notable of which occurred when she attended a ballet with the king's cousin, the Mademoiselle de Montpensier. The Mademoiselle, who, it must be noted, was herself no stranger to scandal, was absolutely horrified as she watched Christina put her legs up onto an adjoining chair and, quote, adopted a posture so indecent that one glimpsed what even the least modest woman should keep hidden, end quote. Although the f- refined ladies of the French court ridiculed her manners, yet one of the least friendly among them admitted that there was no stain on her character whatsoever. Generally, the Parisians appreciated her wit and talent for repartee. Christina did not actually see Mazarin until the end of September, when she rode out to the town of Chantilly to meet him, Still hoping to avoid discussing the plot, Mazarin threw a surprise banquet for Christina, and the guests of honor were none other than the 18 year old King Louis XIV and his brother Philippe. The two had traveled to Chantilly dressed as regular noblemen, and Mazarin introduced them as simply two of the most accomplished gentlemen in all of France. Christina recognized them both immediately, and said of Louis, quote, He seems as though he were born to wear the crown. End quote. By all accounts, their first meeting was cordial, and each of them seemed to greatly admire the other, although Christina was growing increasingly impatient to get her Neapolitan scheme in motion. The next day, Christina accompanied the king and his retinue to the Chateau de Compigne, which was, at the time, his favorite hunting lodge. It was here that Christina finally managed to corner Mazarin and laid out the details for the Naples scheme as she envisioned it. In her ideal scenario, she would personally lead a contingent of 4,000 French soldiers into the city of Naples and depose the Spanish viceroy, after which she would be proclaimed Queen of Naples. She would rule as she saw fit for the rest of her life, but, in exchange for French support, Christina would ally her new kingdom with France, and, following her death, she would pass the throne on to a member of the House of Bourbon. Mazarin tacitly agreed to this proposal, but still gave her no official support or any specific plans. As one biographer put it, quote, the cardinal had done a lot of listening, but not a great deal of talking. End quote. Christina nevertheless had full confidence that she had secured the complete backing of the French kingdom, and in her letters to Mazarin she made frequent references to the treaty we made at Compiègne. Mazarin tellingly referred to it as the treaty which the queen proposed at Compiègne. In late September, Christina departed from Compiègne, intending to go first to Rome to tie up some loose ends. And then, hopefully, it was on to Naples. The member of King Louis XIV's court were very happy to see her gone, especially Mazran, who gave her a gift of 15,000 crowns before sending her on her way. Christina returned to Italy to find that the plague that she had used as her excuse to leave in the first place had gotten far worse. 12,000 people had died in Rome alone. Christina languished in the small coastal town of Persaro, unable to enter Rome and with no word from Mazarin. After ten months here, Christina snapped, and, without having made any arrangements, she decided to return to France. On the 10th of October, 1657, she arrived in Paris once again. She was put up in an apartment in the palace of Fontainebleau, but Mazarin still refused to meet with her in person, and the tone of his correspondence was becoming increasingly dismissive. She felt that she had to make some grand gesture to make him take her seriously, and ultimately, her course of action would forever tarnish her reputation. When Cristina fell in with Azzolino and the squadron Volante, she dismissed her Spanish entourage and replaced them with Italians, mainly Neapolitan noblemen who would hopefully make up her court when she sat on the throne of Naples. The two most prominent of these men were Gian Mondaleschi and the Santinilli brothers, Ludovico and Francesco. Since she had met them all in Rome, they had accompanied her on her travels since, and they were her most close confidants, next to Azzelino. However, all was not well in Christina's little court. Mondaleski had become a bitter rival of Francesco Santinelli, and, in an effort to run him afoul of the Queen, he forged a number of letters in Santinelli's handwriting, which contained scurrilous details about the Queen's personal life. Christina, in her increasing frustration and paranoia, had come to suspect Mondaleski of some disloyalty, and when she came into possession of these letters allegedly written by Francesco Santinelli, she immediately suspected that Mondeleski was the real culprit. She searched through his mail and discovered correspondence with his own handwriting and signatures, which confirmed her suspicions. On November 10th, 1657, she met with Mondeleski in the Gallerie de Cerf in the Palace of Fontainebleau. Their meeting was business as usual, and when Christina raised the subject of the letters, Mondeleski replied that the author had to have either been Santinelli or himself. Christina then asked him a leading question, asking what punishment such treachery deserves, to which Mondeleski replied, death. Having essentially gotten Mondeleski to pass his own death sentence, Christina then gave a signal, and on one side of the room entered Father Labelle, a priest to whom she had entrusted the evidence of Mondeleski's treachery, and on the other side entered Ludovico Santinelli and three other men, whom I have seen alternatively described as domestic servants or mercenaries. With a packet of Mondoleski's writings in hand, Christina first showed him the letters that he had forged, and asked if he had any knowledge of them. He, of course, denied it. She then produced the incriminating letters that he had written in his own hand, and repeated the question. Faced with undeniable proof, Mondolesky scrambled to come up with excuses and to cast the blame elsewhere, but he was cornered. At this time, Ludovico Santinelli and the two men, who were with him, drew their swords. Mondaleski threw himself at Christina's feet, begging for a reprieve. This she granted him, and for the next two hours they paced up and down the gallery, with Mondaleski attempting to come up with excuses and explanations and begging for mercy, while Christina looked on with cold, silent indifference. Once Christina had grown thoroughly tired of this, she turned to Father Lebel and dramatically declared, quote, Reverend father, I shall now withdraw. I leave this man to you. Prepare him for death and take his soul under your protection." End quote. At this, Father Labell began to plead with the queen to show mercy, but she would have none of it. "Mondoleski was a criminal and a traitor," she said, "and by his own admission he deserved to die." And with that she left the room. Mondoleski pleaded with Father Labell to go to the queen and ask for mercy on his behalf which both he and Ludovico Santinelli did to no avail. Grissina maintained that Mondeleski deserved to die, and that she was well within her rights to have him executed. Returning to the room, Father Labelle tearfully gave Mondeleski his last rites, and then watched as Santinelli and the two others put him to death. Perhaps expecting a knife in the back, Mondeleski had arrived to this meeting with the Queen wearing a breastplate of chainmail, which made the executioner's jobs very difficult. All told, it took them 15 minutes to carry out the deed. When all four men reported Mondaleski's death to Christina, she expressed some regret that she had to undertake this nasty business, but that justice had been served nevertheless. She tasked Father Labelle with disposal of the body. She also gave him a sizable sum of money, with instructions to give it to a nearby monastery, to pay for 30 masses to be offered up for Mondaleski's soul. A great deal of uncertainty surrounds the grisly execution of Gian Mondoleschi, especially in regards to Christina's unwavering determination to see him executed in the first place. As word of this sordid deed spread quickly throughout Europe, contemporaries ascribed their own motives to the killing. A popular, although highly unlikely, version of the story was that Christina and Mondeleschi had been lovers, and that he had somehow jilted her. The French royal court was scandalized, none more so than the king's mother, Anne of Austria, who entreated her son to evict his savage guest. King Louis was, for his part, also enraged by the affair, mostly because he felt it an unacceptable overstep of his prerogative for her to have a man executed in his palace. Mazarin, too, decided that Christina was no longer worth the trouble, and wished for her to leave, but as much as everyone at court wanted her gone, their hands were tied, Strictly speaking, Christina had been well within her rights to order Mondelewski's execution. In her act of abdication, she retained sovereign authority over members of her personal household. What's more, the French could not take any direct action against Christina for fear of alienating their Swedish allies. None of them could convince Christina to leave of her own volition, and for nearly a year she languished at Fontainebleau, shunned by polite society, all the while writing numerous letters to Mazarin practically begging him to meet with her so that they could finally put their Neapolitan plan into action. Mazarin refused to see her, but, eager to be rid of her, he offered her the use of a palazzo in Rome his family owned, as well as another tidy sum of money if she agreed to leave. Finally taking the hint, Christina departed from France in May of 1658. When Pope Alexander received word of this affair, he denounced Christina as, quote, a woman born of a barbarian, Barbarously brought up and living with barbarous thoughts, with a ferocious and almost intolerable pride. End quote. He also informed her that he would be taking legal action against Mondaleski's killers, and that she was expressly forbidden from returning to Rome. Cristina disregarded this and returned to Rome anyway. While she stayed at Mazran's palazzo at his expense, she continued to be plagued by her own financial problems. To make ends meet, she had Francesco Santinelli pawn off most of her valuable possessions. When she realized that he was pocketing a significant portion of the proceeds for him himself, she dismissed him and had Cardinal Azzolino, who had stood by her side through all of this, to take charge of her household affairs. Azzolino took it upon himself to restore Cristina's reputation with the Vatican. He was successful at this, and by the end of the year, Cristina and the Pope were on speaking terms once again. Pope Alexander seems to have taken pity on Christina and, learning of the pitiful state of her finances, granted her a pension of 12,000 crowns a year, on the condition that she vacate the Palazzo Mazzurani, which was located directly next to his own residence. Christina's reputation with Rome's landlords had been permanently damaged when she trashed the Palazzo Farinese, where she stayed when she first got to Rome, but Azzelina was able to secure her a lease on the Palazzo Riario where she would live for the rest of her life. Azzelino indeed turned out to be a competent financial minister, and while the allowance from the Pope was only a fraction of what she was supposed to be receiving from the Kingdom of Sweden, it was enough to keep her from going completely bankrupt. Any hope Christina had about becoming the Queen of Naples was dashed for good in the summer of 1659, when Spain and France signed the Peace of the Pyrenees, ending their hostilities. Worse news arrived from abroad that April, Carl Gustav, King Carl X, Christina's former lover and cousin, had died suddenly in February. He was only 37 years old. Exactly how deeply Christina felt his loss is hard to say. Her immediate thoughts were of her finances. As previously mentioned, Carl Gustav had gotten Sweden involved in an absolute mess of a conflict known as the Second Northern War, and because of this, he had been unable to provide Christina with the money that had been promised to her. However, for the last two years or so of his reign, Carl Gustav managed to send Christina a sum of money, although reduced from the full amount promised. With his death, he was succeeded by his five-year-old son, Carl XI. Until he reached his majority, a regency council would run the country in his name, much as what happened with Christina. The council was headed by Magnus de la Gardie, who was once one of Christina's favorites at court, but had fallen out of favor in the final years of her reign. Christina was concerned that the new government, dominated by Magnus, would seek to deny her any financial assistance whatsoever. Christina made up her mind to return to Sweden, believing that her direct presence at court would remind them of their obligations to her. She departed from Rome in the summer of 1660, bound for Sweden. The Swedish Regency Council had caught wind of Christina's voyage, but because her specific intentions remained as of yet unknown, they thought, justifiably, that her presence in Sweden would cause trouble. While she was resting in the city of Hamburg in preparation for the final stretch of her journey, a Swedish envoy arrived and submitted a formal request that she not enter Sweden and return south from whence she came. It would take a lot more than that to deter her. She continued on, and in October 1660, after having been gone for six whole years, Christina returned to her home. Christina assured the Regency Council that she had only returned to Sweden to ensure that they paid her what they owed her, and that if this could be arranged, she would not cause them any trouble. The Regency Council was still none too pleased with this whole affair, but they were compelled to treat Christina with the proper respect due to a former queen. A ceremonial procession into the capital, temporary lodgings in the royal palace, etc. The Reichstag convened that following month, and after some wrangling, they agreed to continue their payments to Christina, but they could not guarantee her the full amount, given the war's expenses. Christina was apparently not satisfied with this, and, perhaps out of anger at religious discrimination she had been subjected to ever since she set foot in Sweden, she submitted a letter to the Reichstag saying that should the sickly young king pass away, she would be well within her rights to reassert her claim to the throne. Christina probably had no real intention to make good on this threat and, because the Reichstag had the ability to cut off her pension payments, she backed down almost immediately. To avoid any future difficulties, Christina was made to sign a statement, renewing her abdication. With her business concluded, Christina left Sweden in the May of 1661, with nothing but the Reichstag's word that they would pay her. The visit to Sweden caused her some deal of mental anguish, as evidenced by a letter she wrote to Azzelino a month before her departure, which reads, quote, for God's sake, send me some money so that I can make haste and leave this awful country where I have been so cruelly persecuted. I assure you that as soon as I have received my money, I shall not stay here for another hour, and that I would rather die in poverty anywhere else than to live in Sweden again. Please arrange my affairs so that I may leave here as soon as possible. End quote. Her greatest regret was that during her entire stay in Sweden she had been unable to see her former paramour, Countess Ebba Spar. Her brother-in-law, Magnus de la Gardie, refused to allow such a meeting to take place, but for Ebba's part, she didn't seem to make such a great effort to see Christina in the first place. She was already quite ill, and within a year she would be dead, without ever having seen Christina again. Christina was so drained from her visit to Sweden that she found herself unable to complete the journey to Rome. She returned once more to Hamburg, and ended up staying there for nearly an entire year. She spent most of this time attempting to reorganize her finances, hiring her host, the Jewish banker Diego Texiera, to manage her holdings in Northern Europe for her. During this time, she also made an attempt to secure religious freedom in Sweden. After all, the free imperial city of Hamburg granted freedom of worship, along with several other European polities. So, why should she be subjected to religious persecution in her own home country of Sweden? She sent letters to all the Catholic monarchs of Europe, the King of France, the King of Spain, the Holy Roman Emperor, and others, requesting that they demand freedom of worship in all the nations of Europe. Each of these letters received a brief non-committal reply, or no reply at all. Christina returned to Rome in the summer of 1662, and passed a number of years there in relative comfort and prosperity. She now had a close circle of dedicated friends and companions, Azzolino chief among them. She devoted her time and energy towards her studies, the subject that interested her most these days was chemistry, and re-establishing her collections of art and literature. She even found the time to take up gardening as a hobby. It seemed that after a long and restless life, she was finally able to settle down. But before the end of the decade, she would find herself returning to Sweden once again. The reasons for Christina's second return to Sweden, or should I say, attempted second return to Sweden, are really quite obscure, and I'll admit I had a bit of trouble understanding what motivated Christina to return to that country that she'd so come to despise. My own sources are divided on the question. One author claims that she went to deal with an administrator of hers who had been mismanaging her estates. Another claimed that she went there to prevent a war from breaking out between Sweden and Denmark that would have disrupted her pension payments. Still a third author claims that, regardless of whatever reasons she gave, her true aim was to convert Sweden to Catholicism. While this is almost certainly untrue, the Regency Council that still held power in Sweden believed it. Christina arrived in Sweden in April 1667 and made it to the town of Norkoping, a little over halfway to Stockholm, when she was met by Pontus de la Gardaí who had been sent by his brother Magnus. The younger de La informed Christina that, while she had been allowed to enter Stockholm, she must first dismiss the Catholic priest who traveled with her. What's more, she would not be allowed to celebrate Mass publicly at the French Embassy, although provisions would be made to allow her to do so in private. Magnus knew that these terms would be unacceptable to Christina, and hoped that they would work to drive her away. And that is exactly what happened. Outrage, Christina turned and made for the port of Helsingborg and chartered the first ship bound for Hamburg. While she was staying in Hamburg, news reached her of Pope Alexander the Seventh's death. This came as no surprise, as the Pope had been ailing for some time now, and it did not take long for a successor to be chosen, Giulio Rospigliosi, who chose the papal name, Clement the Eleventh. Christina was very pleased at this news. Compared to his predecessor, Pope Clement was far more amiable and liberal. He was an avid patron of the arts, and he was an ally of the Squadron Volante, and a personal friend of Christina's. Christina decided to throw a grand celebration in honor of the new Pope. Everyone close to Christina warned her that this was ill-advised. While, unlike in Sweden, there was freedom of worship in Hamburg, Christina's confidants warned that such a brazen, outward celebration of the Catholic faith would not sit well with the city's majority Protestant populace. Not helping matters was the fact that Diego Texiera, at whose house the party was to take place, was Jewish. Christina ignored these warnings, and the party proceeded as planned on July 25th. The celebrations were preceded by a Catholic Mass, which was concluded with the discharge of a cannon. The main attraction of the night was then revealed. Over 600 lanterns, which had been arranged in the shape of the papal regalia, and the words, Long live Pope Clement XI, in Latin. Christina and her guests then enjoyed a banquet, which included a fountain of wine in front of the residence, which the public was invited to take part in. Inevitably, people became quite drunk, and as expected, the Protestant population of Hamburg began to grow rowdy against the backdrop of these impudent popish festivities. Just as the party was winding down and Christina prepared to turn in for a night, She was met by a hail of stones that an angry mob had hurled against her window. The guards tried to fight them back, and to no avail. Christina then gave them the order to use firearms against the crowd. To her surprise, this only had the effect of further enraging the mob. As the townspeople were then joined by some English and Danish sailors, the crowd responded with some gunfire of their own. As the combat showed no signs of ending, Christina slipped out of the building and escaped to the safety of the Swedish embassy. All told, eight of the rioters were killed and an unknown larger amount were wounded. For her part, Christina made outward signs of contrition, paying out 2,000 crowns to those who had been injured in the fighting, and, both the government and citizenry of Hamburg interpreted this as an ample enough apology. Christina remained in Hamburg for another year. She was growing rather old, she was 42 at this point, and it had been over a decade since she had last sat upon the throne of Sweden but she never seems to have overcome the feelings of listlessness that soon came on after her abdication. From Hamburg, she made one last attempt to rule again. On September 16th, 1668, John Casimir II, King of Poland and Grand Duke of Lithuania, abdicated. John Casimir was a member of the Polish branch of the House of Vasa. Each of his eleven siblings had either married into other dynasties or had died without issue. John Casimir himself had two legitimate children, both of whom died before reaching one year of age, and the death of his wife is cited as his primary motive for abdicating. And so, John Casimir and Christina were the only two remaining members of the House of Vasa, and they would be the last. Following his abdication, John Casimir would join the Jesuit order and dedicate himself to a life of monasticism, and Christina would remain dedicated to her self-imposed vow of celibacy. Had the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth been a typical hereditary monarchy, the crown would have likely passed to Christina. But the Polish monarch was elected by a body of noblemen, much how things worked in Sweden before the rise of the House of Bassa. While a blood relation to the previous monarch was not absolutely necessary, it was nevertheless a factor that the electors considered. Christina put her name forward to the Polish nobility. She claimed that her childlessness was actually a boon, and that it would prevent the country from being dominated from the influence of one family. Her candidacy was supported by Pope Clement, who sent a letter of recommendation which emphasized her Catholic faith and royal pedigree. Christina was up against some tough competition, including a member of the French ruling dynasty and the Tsar of Russia. Ultimately, a native nobleman, Michael Vecinioveski, was elected. As the nobility wished to keep the country free of foreign influence, Christina was not terribly devastated at this development she did not have her heart set on becoming the Queen of Poland as she had on becoming the Queen of Naples. More importantly, she could now live out the rest of her life in Rome with her beloved Azzolino, and, believe it or not, that is more or less exactly what she did. She returned to Rome once more in November 1668, and never again embarked on any of her grand sojourns north. Her bid for the Polish throne was her last direct foray into politics, to be sure, Christina could not remove herself completely from the political sphere. For instance, when her old acquaintance Louis the Fourteenth revoked the Edict of Nantes, which allowed for religious toleration in France, Christina wrote him a furious letter in which she compared his actions to self-mutilation and entreated him to reconsider. She also wrote to Sweden whenever she felt that some political development there would affect her pension, but for the most part, she resigned herself to political spectatorship. Christina never truly gained the peace of mind she had searched for her entire life, but the intellectual and artistic pursuits to which she dedicated it herself continued to give her life meaning. At the center of her intellectual life was the Academy of Arcadia, which she founded shortly after her first arrival in Rome. The Academy of Arcadia began as a small group of intellectuals that coalesced around Christina, and they were initially devoted to, quote, "...the study of every subject that was pleasant, learned, and curious, cultivating and improving the mind, the talents, and the language. End quote. Eventually, they would come to emphasize this very last part, the improvement of the Italian language, specifically the Tuscan dialect, above everything else. The Academy of Arcadia's work in this field is considered a significant milestone in the development of the modern Italian language, but during Christina's lifetime, its field of study remained rather broad. Despite her perennial money problems, Christina still became a patron of the arts in her own right, and she founded the careers of several notable musicians and poets, including the influential Baroque composer, Alexandro Scarletti. It helped that Pope Clement was such an avid supporter of the arts as well, and with his help, Christina had built the first modern public theater in the city of Rome, on the former site of an infamous prison. Clement XI's tenure as Pope is often cited as a golden age for Roman arts and literature, but it was not the last. He died in 1669, a mere two years into his reign. His successor, also named Clement, disapproved of Christina's devotion to the arts, but he did not do anything to impede her. His successor, on the other hand, Pope Innocent XI, was downright puritanical, and he had Christina's theater shut down under the pretext of preserving public morality. Christina protested this, to be sure, but... It seems in her old age, Christina no longer possessed the energy to fight it too vehemently, and so she backed down, and, for the last decade of her life, she more or less retreated from the public sphere entirely, only really leaving the comfort of her palazzo, uncharacteristically enough, to attend weekly mass. During this time, Christina dedicated much of her energy towards writing. She wrote a number of works, including some treatises on subjects such as art, music, and language as well as biographies of her idols, Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. I have not read them myself, but these later academic writings of Christina's are described as being not entirely without merit, although not reflective of the true extent of her intellect. Christina also attempted to write an autobiography, which was never finished, although drafts of it are said to still exist. Christina's self-reflection was likely her preparing, whether consciously or unconsciously, for her death. In 1688, a visitor described the 61-year-old former queen as, quote, "...exceedingly fat and corpulent," end quote. Christina was beginning to suffer from diabetes. That fall, she ordered from her tailor a white dress which she designed and embroidered with floral designs of gold. She received it by Christmas, and while wearing it, she addressed one of her servants, quote, "...the scound makes me very thoughtful. I believe I shall soon have call to wear it." at one of the greatest events of my life. Can you guess what that might be? The servant was reluctant to answer at first, but at Christina's insistence, she replied, Your Majesty thinks you will soon be buried in this gown. We are all mortal, Christina then said, you as well as I. Life is but a dream and it vanishes like lightning. We are all hurrying to eternity. God grant that in his mercy we may reach it happily. In February 1689, Christina took a trip down south in hopes that the warmer weather in the countryside would do her some good. The journey itself turned out to be more strenuous than expected. She developed dropsy and a dangerously high fever. She was quickly returned to Rome, where her condition only worsened. Having heard of her condition, the Pope dispatched a cardinal to administer her last rites, but by the time he arrived, Christina had fallen into a coma. Miraculously, she regained consciousness relatively soon afterwards. Believing the worst to be over, she wrote to the Swedish ambassador, I had resigned myself to making the final journey, but God has snatched me from the embrace of death. I am full of life again. The strength of my temperament has pulled me from a sickness capable of killing twenty Hercules. End quote. Her celebration ultimately proved to be premature, as two weeks later she relapsed and her condition really became hopeless. Now, fully aware that her death was inevitable, she began to put her affairs in order. She received her last rites, and even wrote to her erstwhile adversary, Pope Innocent XI, asking him to forgive her for all of the insults she had given him over the years. She spent her final waking hours recalling anecdotes of her father, Chancellor Oxenstierna, and others, and expressing her gratitude to Azzolino for his years of companionship and devotion. Christina died very early, in the morning of April 19, 1689, with Azzolino right by her side to the very end. That morning, Azzolino wrote, quote, The Queen is dead, and she has died in all holiness, true and faithful child of God and a daughter of the Catholic Church. End quote. Christina had expressed her desire for a simple funeral and a burial in the Pantheon, but Pope Innocent disregarded this request, as quote, the glory of God and his Church on earth demand otherwise. A simple funeral would be a triumph for the heretics and a scandal and disgrace to Rome. In keeping with her wishes, Christina's body was dressed in the garment she had especially ordered for the occasion. Her body was taken to the church of Santa Maria in Vallicella, where she lay in state. The following day, an enormous funeral procession made its way from Santa Maria in Vallicella to St. Peter's Basilica. There, the actual funeral ceremony was held. Half of the city of Rome, including the entire College of Cardinals, was in attendance. During the ceremony, her body was transferred between three coffins, one made of cypress wood, another made of lead, and a third made of oak, as was traditionally done with the body of the Pope. She was buried in the Vatican Grottoes, underneath St. Peter's Basilica. This was the traditional burial site of Popes, and she is one of four women to have ever been buried there, before or since. In Christina's last will, she gave some of her valuables to the Pope, some she gave to the kings of France and Spain, others she gave to the Holy Roman Emperor. To her successor in Sweden, she gave absolutely nothing. The vast majority of her earthly possessions, however, she bequeathed to Azzolino. However, he wouldn't be around long to enjoy them. The loss of Cristina left poor Azzolino inconsolable. His health steadily deteriorated, and he died only 50 days later, at the age of 66. His nephew and heir, Pompeo Azzolino, had no interest in Cristina's quite impressive collection of 500-plus paintings, and sold them off to a commander in the papal army, who, in turn, sold them to Philippe, Duke d'Orléans, the current region of France. To this day, these paintings constitute the core of what is known as the Orléans Collection, which has been called the greatest collection of Western art ever assembled. And there you have it, the life of Queen Christina of Sweden, I hope you have seen by this point why Christina has earned the historical distinction as being one of the most eccentric and interesting monarchs in European history. Christina's story has long been fascinating to me, as a matter of fact. This series of episodes was the first that I researched and wrote the script for, all the way back in 2018. Regardless of one's opinions on monarchy, Christina is an admirable figure. Sure, she had flaws, but I can't help but respect her unapologetically independent nature. Towards the end of her life, she wrote, quote, I don't know if I ever really tried to overcome my faults, end quote. These, biographer Veronica Buckley writes, were the faults of a queen and the faults of an unloved child, the faults of a fearful woman and those of a gifted mind and of a hopeless, desperate person striving to be great. Christina was indeed a child of her heroic time, a misshapen pearl of the Baroque, lustrous and precious despite its imperfections. From the grand and lovely portraits, her blue eyes still gaze across the centuries, still challenging, still hoping, while the fireworks of her story, at first dazzling, at times even lurid, settle at last to a more human glow. End quote. I don't think I could have said it better myself. Christina's whole journey is also an interesting window into the early modern period of Europe. One can clearly see the political and religious dynamics of the time and place play out over the course of her life. As mentioned before, Christina's story seemed outrageous to the audiences of yesteryear. Even to this day, she remains a figure of some controversy. There are still debates regarding her true gender. But it's my hope that if this series has accomplished anything, it has served to help humanize this seemingly larger-than-life character. I sincerely hope that you have enjoyed this series on the life and times of Queen Christina of Sweden. What are your thoughts on Christina? Do you have questions, want something clarified, or even have suggestions for future podcast topics? If so, feel free to email the show at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can address such things to me via Twitter or Facebook the links to which will be in the description. I'd like to once again thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks' time as we follow Napoleon Bonaparte as he ventures off to Egypt in search of fame and glory. Until then, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast, I'm your host, Will Connor, signing off.